This episode of Biscuits and Jam is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living Magazine. During this 12-part podcast series, we're talking to legendary musicians and celebrated chefs about their hometowns, their first jobs, their big breaks, and the Southern food they love. We'll cover everything from being hungry for a career in the spotlight to being just plain hungry. Recorded as we all sheltered at home, you'll also hear honest conversations about what really matters and the hope for a better future. If you haven't already, be sure to check out our first episode with Jake Owen and subscribe for future discussions with Martina McBride, John Hyatt, Scott Avitt, Brett Eldridge, and more later this season. Today's guest has built a relationship with fans all over the world through her band's incredible songs, her own cookbook, and social media posts sharing her Southern kitchen creations. But you won't hear her bragging about it. I'm not a trained chef, especially when I'm talking to you at Southern Living. I have to make that clear. Kimberly Schlappman grew up in Cornelia, Georgia, and is a member of the massively successful country music quartet Little Big Town. Since their debut record in 2002, she and her bandmates Karen Fairchild, Philip Sweet, and Jimmy Westbrook have racked up three Grammys, multiple ACM and CMA awards, and they've twice been named CMT's Artist of the Year. The band's latest album, Nightfall, released this past January, debuted at number one on Billboard's Top Country Albums chart. On this week's episode, we'll discuss Little Big Town's hit, The Daughters, and its impactful message of equality that starts at home. That song is important to point out just stereotypes and expectations that have been put on women over the ages that are really unfair. But I feel like now the tide is turning, and I think that song is just the best message to men and women for all of us to remember to build up those little children, whether it's a boy or a girl, to make them believe in themselves. We'll also hear how Kimberly has stayed positive in the wake of COVID-19. I feel like in this really scary time, there are still blessings and the greatest in my opinion is time with the people that we love. Plus, Kimberly's favorite restaurants, how her family celebrates the holidays, and much more coming up on episode two of Biscuits and Jam with Kimberly Schlappman. Kimberly, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. Oh, hi, Sid. I'm so happy to be here. When um, I got the call about this podcast, I was like, well, if there's ever been a podcast I want to be a part of, it's one called Biscuits and Jam. (laughs) (laughs) It's great to have you on. Tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up in a small town in Georgia. I grew up in the North Georgia mountains in the most gorgeous, picturesque setting with the Blue Ridge Mountains right out our front door with a family who worked really, really hard and had very, very strong faith. And I can't think of a more perfect raisin than what I had. My parents were incredibly loving. They were dedicated to their family. My parents, I say, are perfect, and they get mad at me when I say that. (laughs) But they are to me, and they were. And I could not have been more loved. And, you know, that's that's really all a child needs. 
So who was the uh, who's the cook in your family? All the women in my family were cooks. Both of my grandmothers, my mom. I, I lived right next door to one of my grandmothers, and then just five minutes away from the other grandmother. And then for a while, I had both of my great grandmothers, who were also incredible cooks. One of my great grandmothers made forty biscuits every day because she had eight kids. And they worked out in the fields. And so every morning she made 40 biscuits for those, <laughs> for those hardworking kiddos. So I'm from a legacy, you know, of women who took care of their families by cooking for them. And they loved on their families. And that's what my mama taught me, that you love on people. One way to love on people is by cooking for them. And so both of my great grandmothers, my grandmothers and my mama, I, I have recipes from all of them. And I'm not a trained chef, and especially when I'm talking to you at Southern Living. I have to make that clear. I, I was never trained. I just grew up watching those amazing women in my family take care of the people they love. And I learned a whole lot from them. So when did you start cooking yourself? I remember I have very early memories. I'll, I'll say I was probably four um, on a stool in the kitchen. One was pouring milk into the bowl that my mama was making biscuits in. She was letting me pour milk from the gallon jug and into which she was obviously helping me with. But she was letting me add the milk to her biscuits. And then I also have a memory on the same stool with an empty bowl and a wooden spoon. And in that memory, I'm stirring nothing in the bowl <laughs> and acting like I have my own cooking show. And I'm talking in this really funny voice, like I was stirring in the bowl and I was talking like this. I had this really weird voice. And if you add your ingredients and mix it real well together, I don't know where that came from. But I have those two early memories of, of having my own cooking show and um, being on a, that same stool adding milk to mama's biscuits. So what were some of your favorite meals as a kid? My mama made grits a lot and they were so creamy and buttery and oh, so, so good. My mama baked a lot. So we always had brownies or cookies or cakes or something. Also, mama made chicken and dumplings a lot and she still does. Um, that's my favorite thing. She makes when we're coming home and she says, what, what do you want me to cook for you? I'm always like chicken and dumplings, please. Also, we didn't have a lot of money. So we had a lot of fresh vegetables or canned vegetables, you know, from the summer before. So I remember a lot of like canned green beans and frozen corn and things like that, which, you know, I today I just treasure those things. We were always around the table together. Always. My mama, my daddy, my sister and I, because my brother didn't come along until I was in college. But um, growing up every night, it would be a very rare occasion if we weren't at the supper table for supper. We all sat down together and daddy said a blessing and then we all ate. And so my husband and I do that today. It's really important, especially as much as I travel and my girls almost always go with me when we travel. I love to cook when we are home and we will always make a point to sit down at the table, hold hands, say the blessing and eat together. And there's no devices on the table. There's no TV on in the house. I, I treasure that sacred time because of our lives today are so crazy and busy and 
well, not right now because we're in quarantine, but normally our lives are so crazy busy that I call that time just sacred family time. Well, and you have a lot of that time right now. Has that been a nice thing? You know, with all the craziness, people are spending more time at home. Those who are lucky enough to do so, I mean, have, has that been a, a real positive for you guys? Yeah, it has been normally. for I mean, for the last 20 years, I've been traveling a ton. And I always, almost always do take my girls with me. But this time that we're having together at home is just precious. And I won't say that it's perfect because, you know, there's this kind of dark cloud of worry that, that we're all experiencing right now. We're all trying to protect our families from this terrible virus. And we're all worried about the, the doctors and the nurses who are sacrificing themselves every day to take care of all of us. And um, I'm worried about my parents and my mother-in-law. But, but yet, yes, I treasure this time at home. I told Daisy, my 12-year-old, a couple of days ago, I don't think this will ever happen again in your lifetime that we will have this much close family time together. I feel like in this really scary time, there are, you know, there are still blessings. And the greatest, in my opinion, is time with the people that we love. So you recently posted a picture of your daughter and I think your mom making tea cakes together. and. I noticed that you guys were wearing aprons that belonged to your grandmother. Yes. Um, tell me why that connection is so important to you. My grandmothers always wore aprons. That was just something. I, I wish we still did that. And sometimes I'll pull out my aprons at home for practicality. If I'm frying, you know, something, I don't want to get on my shirt. But also for nostalgia, I can close my eyes and see my grandmother's at the stove in their aprons. And so when my mama decided she was going to teach Daisy how to make tea cakes, she often wears an apron too. So it's not out of the ordinary for her, but she pulled out two, one for her and one for Daisy. And they each had belonged to her mother. And tea cakes in our family, when you say tea cake, you can also uh, substitute the word love because it's it's equal. Mama's tea cakes are pure love. And so when she grabbed those aprons and she stood at the counter and put daisies on her, um, I, it, tears flooded my eyes because that is so much more than just making a cookie. So much more. It's a family tradition. It's um, It's a memory for me and Daisy. And it's it's just a way for my mother to love on her grandchild by passing that knowledge along. And um, that picture, I'm going to frame it and put it in my house because it is one of my greatest worldly treasures. So Kimberly, what about the holidays? How would you guys normally celebrate Easter? Since I was a child, we've been going to Easter sunrise service. Almost, it's just worked out probably over the last 10 or 15 years. That little big town, we rarely work on Easter. Some of those Week, Easter weekends, we have been on the road. But for the last decade, I would say almost every Easter, 
we're off. So we've been able to go back home to Georgia for Easter. And so we participate in that sunrise service every Easter Sunday morning. And it's on the top of a mountain in our little hometown called Tower Mountain. And it's a whole community service. So on your way up the mountain, you park and then everybody walks up to the tippy tippy top where there's a a big tower there, a gorgeous old tower. And it looks out over the whole valley and the mountains and the fog because it's early in the morning. There's usually fog there. And that place, you can feel Jesus at the top of that mountain. I mean, it, it is spectacular. And what do uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas, those kinds of holidays look like uh, with your family? Thanksgiving, we've started the tradition over the past probably 10 years that the whole family, both sides, my family from Georgia and my husband's family from Virginia, they all come to our house. This last Thanksgiving, there were 19 people at our house for six days. (laughs) And our house is not that big. (laughs) I mean, we've got people sleeping in walk-in closets. We've got um, the room I'm in now will have about eight pallets in it girls sleeping all over the place. Um, So there are nine grand girls and one little grandbaby boy, but it is so much fun. I'm kind of a neat freak. So I have to let that go for that week because it looks like a tornado hit this house. I mean, there is stuff everywhere. It's chaotic. It's loud. It's messy. But the memories that we're making every single year are incredibly precious, incredibly precious. If you've followed Kimberly's career, you may know that she and her family have suffered some great losses. Her first husband passed away of a heart attack in 2005. And in 2012, her brother-in-law was killed by a drunk driver. I asked Kimberly if cooking or sharing meals with loved ones has helped her through the grieving process. Definitely. Food and cooking, to me, are part of the healing. So much revolves around food, whether it's celebration or grief. And um, I think food brings us together. And when we are at that table together, that's where the healing begins. And since you say that about cooking, I remember when my first husband died, Right after his service, we were in the kitchen and I said to my bandmate, Karen, as I cried to her, I said, who am I going to cook for now? Because to me, I, well, I needed to cook for somebody. I needed to show that kind of love to somebody. And as soon as those words came out of my mouth, who am I going to cook for now? She put her hands on my shoulders and she said, me. And that Oh, that gives me chills right now to think about because she knew how important it was for me to cook for people and to help and to take care of people that way. And she started coming over and I started cooking supper for her and goodies for her. And then um, in the kitchen, I, I talk to God a lot. I feel God there. And I would certainly say that my healing, that was a huge part of my healing. I'll also tell you a story after my husband died. I totally lost my appetite as is totally normal. Um, I just couldn't eat a thing. So we had his service in Nashville. And then we also had a service for him in Georgia because that's where so many of our family and friends were. So then I got back home and I came home and it was just me and my dog. 
And I had no appetite. Everybody in my life was so worried about me. You know, she's going to be okay. She's going to make it. And um, a little sweet, precious lady, my friend Lisa, her mom, dropped off a gorgeous black walnut cake. And it was just me at the house. And this, she came and brought this gorgeous cake. So I remember I took it in the kitchen and I, I was like, wow, black walnut cakes are not easy to make. They take a lot of time and a lot of love. So I was like, I'm going to have a piece of this cake. So I cut it and I sat down and I, that was really the first thing I had eaten in many, many days. And I started eating that cake and appreciating all the love that she had put into it. I ate on that cake, just me for so many days and it began, my appetite started coming back and I started feeling better. And I really owe it to that sweet lady and, and the time she took to make that cake for me. It was important and it might sound silly, but that's how I got my appetite back. And it was because of the labor of love she put into that amazing cake. Wow. Well, you may have to share that recipe with us. Yes, I will. It's also in my cookbook. You know, you you obviously wanted to share your love of cooking, your recipes with a bigger audience. And tell me about the genesis of Ogussie and also where the name comes from. <laughs> well, growing up, Ogussie was just a saying that we said all the time. It It could mean, oh, Gussie, this is delicious. Or, oh, Gussie. I dropped a pan in the floor. You know, it could mean so many different things. It's kind of a universal, just little phrase. And so, especially when I moved to Nashville, I think people started noticing that I, I said that a lot. And to me, it's just normal. It just comes out all the time. And when I was approached with writing that book, my manager was like, you have to name it Ogussie because you say that all the time. <laughs> and I, I was like, okay, sure. That sounds good. But I always wanted to write a cookbook. And I worked with an amazing collaborator, Martha Foose, who was just incredible. And she is also very Southern and she's an amazing chef and she has her own cookbook. And she helped me so much put that thing together because she had the same loves and the same upbringing kind of and the same style of cooking that I had. She was just an incredible help to me. But the the publisher, HarperCollins, allowed me to also make not just a cookbook, but a memoir, which I really wanted because for me, food and recipes almost always have a story behind them. And I wanted to share those stories because that's what makes it just that more special when you know how that recipe came about or, or who used to cook that recipe or a little story around that recipe. I think that's really important. We've got more Kimberly Schlattman for you coming up after the break. This episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, 
This slow roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and we're talking with Little Big Town's Kimberly Schlappman. With the way our local restaurants are hurting due to the coronavirus, I thought I'd ask Kimberly about her favorite places to eat, both at home in Nashville and on the road. For probably 15 years, we have been celebrating at a place in California called Crustacean. It's right inside Beverly Hills. And someone took us there maybe more than 15 years ago. And we had Miss Ann's garlic noodles and we have never been the same. (laughs) This precious lady makes this secret recipe she will not share it. I've tried to I've tried to figure it out. I'm I'm going to keep trying, but she makes these most amazing garlic noodles that we will even if we don't have anything to celebrate, we will make up something just so that we can give ourselves the excuse to go eat those garlic noodles. I mean, if that's probably across the board 100% our band's favorite place to eat and it's in California. Almost all of our albums because we love to eat, they seem to take on food themes. So sometimes we'll make a barbecue record where we're eating barbecue almost every day when we, we make records. And sometimes it'll be Mexican food. We'll eat Mexican almost every day we make music. <laughs> so I don't really know why that happens, but um, I, I think it's just because we love to eat so much. In Nashville, oh my goodness, there has been an explosion of amazing restaurants here lately. And and you're right, I, I've, I so ache for these folks who have these amazing restaurants that have had to, you know, pretty much just shut down for the time being. And I'm praying that that doesn't last too much longer. But um, we have some favorite restaurants here. Husk is one of our very favorite restaurants. Um, Our friend and former bass player, Steve Dale, opened up a, uh, he calls it New Mexican restaurant in Franklin, just outside Nashville, called Sopapillas. And it's phenomenal. It is phenomenal. It's it's probably my top restaurant in town or one of my top restaurants in town. Also, the Loveless Cafe, if you come here, it's just a it's just a Nashville experience, the Loveless Cafe. And can we talk barbecue for a second? Oh yeah. I'm I'm one and a half miles from Martin's barbecue. <laughs> I love barbecue. I'm I'm we're I live really I'm a little bit farther than that, but I live really close to the original. Uh, Martin's Barbecue, right at, in Nolansville, um, and also Edley's Barbecue here in Nashville is phenomenal. What about the rest of the band? Are they barbecue people? Big time, big time barbecue people. We used to work with um, Wayne Kirkpatrick, who's a phenomenal songwriter, and um, he's writing some um, Broadway shows now, hugely successful. We love him, and. Our first records that we make, he would barbecue for us. But yes, the whole band is crazy about barbecue. Barbecue anything. (laughs) 
So, Kimberly, y'all have a bunch of big hits around drinking. You've got, there's day drinking, there's over drinking, <laughs> there's, and then there's Sober, which is just a beautiful song. Um, I wonder if you could just talk about that for a second. Yeah, I, I don't know what it is. My band does does have an affinity for spirits, I'll say. I think Sober, which is totally not even about drinking, is the first one that we cut. It came before Day Drinking. Sober is just a gorgeous love song about um, not ever, ever wanting to be without love. I, when I die, I don't want to go sober, which means I, I don't want to go with my heart not full of your love. Um, that song is really special, but yeah, day drinking came soon after that. And then over drinking. And now we have a song called wine, beer and whiskey. (laughs) And what's funny is last night in the kitchen, my little Dolly, who's three, whose song, whose favorite song is wine, beer and whiskey. And my, also my 12 year olds, but, um, that song, all kids seem to gravitate toward that song just because it's so much fun. But last night in the kitchen, little Dolly was going, I'm over drinking. And we all went to each other like, oh, my word, she's singing over drinking. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to ask about your uh, your new children's book. Yes. So you've got a you've got a new book coming out. I think it's coming out in October. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, it's called A Dolly for Christmas. And my baby's name is Dolly. Backstory is Daisy, who's now 12, started praying for a baby when she was four years old. She so badly wanted a sibling. And um, one day she said to me, Mommy, this was when she was five. She said, if I don't ever have a brother or sister, then my, my children will never have aunts or uncles or cousins. And that would be a terrible life. <laughs> and at that moment, I knew how, how very important it was for us to give her a sibling. Um, my husband and I had trouble having a second child and adoption was something that we had always talked about anyway. And we finally came to the realization that after we went through a good bit of tragedy, trying to get pregnant and, and miscarriages, and we decided, you know, I think God is telling us that it's time for adoption. So we started the adoption process. And this whole time, Daisy is praying every night. She's praying for a baby. She doesn't care if it's a boy or a girl. She just wants a baby. And she would she would kneel by her little bed and pray, God, please, I just want a baby. And so we started the adoption process. And that was in the fall of 2016. We were at Blackberry Farm for Little Big Town's Christmas concert that we do there every year over in East Tennessee. And she wrote a letter to Santa, Daisy did, and it said, Dear Santa, all I really want for Christmas is a baby brother or sister. Love, Daisy. And she put it in the North Pole mailbox at Blackberry Farm. And a few days later, she saw Santa in person at um, the adoption agency. They had a Christmas party. And so she sat down in Santa's lap and she said the same thing. All I really want for Christmas is a baby brother or sister. And Santa, I'll never forget this ever in my whole life. Santa looked at her kind of surprised and he said, oh, I don't think even I, I don't, I'm not sure even I can do that. 
And she said, with all the hope in her little face, she said, yeah, but I figure that you know God. And I was thinking you could talk to him too. So Santa was flabbergasted. He had no words. I'll, I'll also never forget all the parents in that room, you know, looking at little Daisy, who was nine at the time, just with almost, oh, that poor child, you know, because she so desperately wanted a baby. And then not too much after that, we got a call about a little baby girl who needed a family. And that was our dolly. And um, so I've written this book. It's a true story. It's the exact story of um, what happened. And it's from Daisy's perspective. And um, it's called A Dolly for Christmas. And it's a message to everyone. It's just a, a universal message of hope. No, no matter what you're going through, do not give up. Do not give up on your dreams. And Daisy didn't. And she got her dreams and her prayers answered in the most amazing way. And those little girls are taught. I mean, they are best friends. I was at the studio when we were making this last record. And for some reason, well, I think we had a thunderstorm and the power went out at home. And I was working late that night. And so my husband told the girls, let's just all get in bed together and we'll all fall asleep together because there was no power. And then when mommy gets home, we'll figure it out. So they all fell asleep together in the bed. And I came home and I was getting everybody up and moving everybody. And um, Daisy said to me, Mommy, Dolly had fallen asleep in Daisy's arms. And Daisy said, Mommy, I don't know what this feeling is, but it's the best feeling I've ever had in my whole life. That that little Dolly was asleep in her arms. And oh, I, I, I fell apart. But they just absolutely adore each other. And the next day I was talking to Daisy about what she had said. And she said, yeah, I think Dolly's my first love. And I mean, that, that says it, that says everything about them. They are, they are in love with each other and it is beautiful. That is a beautiful thing. So, and I'm guessing the name Dolly is not just a coincidence. No, it's not. <laughs> um, of course, I grew up on Dolly Parton's music and, and she is a huge influence to me vocally and I just absolutely adore her. And so as we were talking about names, when we were in the middle of the adoption process, all the paperwork and all that you have to go through. One day, my husband said, if we, if we get a little girl, how about if we name her Dolly? And I was like, oh, yes, 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 yes. So I'm, I'm so grateful. And she's such a little Dolly. Oh, and she got to meet the Dolly. And that was incredibly special and precious. And Dolly Parton has just been so sweet about, about the fact that we also have a Dolly. So, so you've got two daughters now, and mm -hmm. one of Little Big Town's big hits is called "The Daughters." Mm -hmm. So, I'm just I'm wondering, what does that song mean to you? Well, I told you that I think my parents were pretty perfect. They raised me to believe in myself, and they gave me so much confidence in myself. And they told me all the time, "You can do whatever you want to do. You can be whatever you want to be." So many girls in the world don't hear that message. They hear the opposite of that message. To me, I want my girls to know that they can do anything they set their minds to. And if they dream it, they have everything inside them to make it happen. 
I think that song is important to point out just stereotypes and expectations that have been put on women over the ages that are really unfair. Um, But I feel like now our society is beginning to see those unfair expectations and, and the tide is turning. And I'm so grateful because Daisy, who's 12 right now, she she doesn't see the inequality that I grew up seeing because our world is changing and it's, ama- it's an amazing thing. Um, she believes that she's, you know, exactly equal to another 12 year old boy or um, or any boy for that matter. And um, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that she believes in herself. And I think that that song is just the best message to to men and women for all of us to remember to build up those little children whether it's a boy or a girl build them up and make them believe in themselves and pose like a trophy on a shelf and dream for everyone but not yourself i've heard of god the son and god the father i'm just looking Well, as a father of a daughter, it's a, it's a beautiful song, and, and Thank you. I just I just love it. So, Kimberly, we're in the middle of this uh, crazy time. I'm also wondering how this affects you, at Little Big Town, as as songwriters, and do you do you see yourselves responding to this with material? Yeah, I think I think writing songs is also very healing and therapeutic. And so much, so many of us need to get things off our chest right now. I do see, I've already seen um, on Instagram, I've seen so many songs of my friends, songwriting friends who have, have already started writing songs about this experience, but definitely I think this experience will change all of us forever. And I don't see how that experience won't come through in multiple different songs. Kimberly, I just want to end by asking you what you're looking forward to the most when this is all over. Mm. When the quarantine is over, I, I'm so looking forward to hugging people. <laughs> I'm a hugger. I, I just always have been when I greet people, that's just what I do. And so I'm physically, I'm looking forward to, to that, just embracing people. Um, also I'm looking forward to getting back on the road and making, making music with my band and getting out there for the fans who have kind of taken on our record and taken it in and, uh, want to hear that music live and, and who want to sing it with us when you're on stage and, and you're singing a song and someone's singing it back to you, the fans are singing it back to you. Oh, that's just the most incredible feeling because you know that that song means something to them. So I'm looking forward to getting back. Um, we were we were in the middle of a tour of old his, historic theaters all across the country, and it was my favorite tour. It is my favorite tour we've ever done. It's close up. It's intimate. Every night aesthetically is different, um, but I can't wait to get back to look at those faces in that crowd and, and hear their voices. And I hope I hope that we take with us a new sense of appreciation of the people 
that we love and appreciation of the time that we've been forced, you know, pretty much forced to stay together. And so I pray that we learn a lot from this and that we take with us an appreciation of what really matters and don't get so caught up in the hamster wheel of kind of running in circles and going nowhere. I think we have that tendency as a society. So hopefully we can take this appreciation for the things that matter along with us down the road. Well, amen to that. And Kimberly Schlattman, thank you so much for joining us on Biscuits and Jam. Thank you. I had so much fun. Thank you so much. Next time you're coming to my house and I'm giving you biscuits. (laughs) I'll take you up on that. (laughs) Okay, good. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Kimberly Schlattman. Little Big Town's latest album, Nightfall, is available wherever you get music. Visit littlebigtown.com for news, updates, and more. Plus, you can follow Kimberly at ogussy on Twitter and Instagram for recipes, cooking tips, and additional fun around her kitchen. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama, and this podcast was produced and edited in Nashville, Tennessee. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or telling your friends about the program. You can find us online at southernliving.com as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Biscuits and Jam is produced by Heather Morgan Schott, Chrissy Tiglius, and me, Sid Evans, for Southern Living. Thanks also to Ann Kane, Jim Hankey, Eliza Lambert, and Rachel King at Pod People. Get your plate ready for more Biscuits and Jam next week. We'll see you then. <laughs>